Welcome to the Strata Leadership Show, a podcast designed to be an oasis for leaders who are seeking inspiration, insight, and understanding. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Meller, and today our guest is a good friend of mine, Shad Glass. Shad is the Executive Vice President of Kimray Incorporated, which is located in Oklahoma City and is regarded by most as one of the most forward-thinking and innovative companies in how they deal with their people. And so Shad, through his career, has been a huge part of helping shape what Kim Ray would become. And amazingly, Kim Ray helped shape who he would become. It's one of those great moments where both parties have received some benefit of that. So Shad is a dear friend of mine, and I'm very excited to have him on the show today. Uh, he and his wife, Janae, have a daughter, Lindley, and, and Shad has worked at Kim Ray since 1997, which is most of his adult life, if not his entire adult life. So Shad, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nathan. It's good to be here. Well, we are creating this oasis for leaders where we can just talk about things that are important to us. There's not a specific thing we're trying to get done today other than to have a good conversation. And, and what we're looking for is understanding. And so I appreciate you giving us this time. I know this is a very uh, challenging time and, and there's a lot on your plate. So uh, looking at the idea of uh, leadership, at what point in life did you realize that that might be the path that you were going to end up taking, that you would be serving people as a leader? Well, I think um, it would be nice if I could articulate at this precise moment when that became clear to me, but it really was more about an evolution of understanding as I related to other people. I've always loved being around people and I've always wanted to help others achieve goals and their aspirations and just be a peacemaker in the fullest sense of just giving good counsel, receiving good counsel and being a part of a community and a team. So probably my earliest thoughts about leadership probably come from the playground. Uh, in the first grade going out, there was a changeover where the older kids were out aside first. And I remember one day stumbling across uh, coming out the building and seeing a fight taking place on the playground. And, and so I thought, I can solve this. I can be the peacemaker. You know, so I went right up, got right in between the two and telling them there's a there's a better way to solve whatever's wrong. We can figure this out. I didn't know them. They didn't know me. Uh, and, and there came a cost from trying to do the right thing, maybe not necessarily in the right way. I got in between them. And next thing I know, they both turn on me. So my first experience about trying to be a leader in solving conflict uh, resulted in me getting beat up. So that was kind of the, my first taste of what it is to be a leader is that it's not for the faint of heart, that it often comes with a lot of heartache and, and hard decisions that sometimes are the right ones. Just uh, be sensitive to you don't have all the answers, and sometimes those fights are going to happen regardless of your best intent to stop or curtail them. Great example. Uh, I don't know any leaders who have led for any length of time who don't have scars uh, from uh, good intentions of stepping in, and, and sometimes it's unavoidable, uh, but I, I do appreciate the, um, the moment. I don't know that I have a lot of memories from the first grade, so it's impressive that you even have that. So you, you start pretty early in life and you see a need and you're willing to fill that need. Mm -hmm. What were the things that were helping you, that, were, that shaped you to help you see the world that way 
So as you continued on through um, elementary school, on to middle school, high school, what was it that was shaping you to see the world in that way that you could make a difference? You know, I, I had a lot of learning difficulties in uh, my childhood. So there were learning disorders and things that uh, posed significant challenges for me. And so I, I quickly adapted to my circumstance by scanning and reading everyone in the room and trying to kind of seek the answers out by leveraging their skills and abilities in order to compensate for my feelings of inadequacy, right? Mm-hmm. So what I would do is I would befriend the smart kids in the room and I would be teacher and try to have a rapport and a relationship. My mom would say something. She would say, love covers a multitude of sins. And that comes from the, the New Testament. And what she meant by that was if I have a strong relationship, I'm going to screw up. But if I'm in a good rapport with those I'm around and surrounding myself with, they're more apt to forgive and overlook those things and try to come alongside and build me up and help me recover and vice versa. I'm going to do the same. If I have a relationship with those that I'm doing life with, I'm going to be far more apt to overlook, um, you know, a faux pas or a mistake and try to help them understand and learn and grow from it. So for me, that quickly became my strategy for life was just get along with everybody, be the peacemaker, seek to understand where they're coming from, and then they're going to help me with my shortcomings. And that strategy worked fairly well. I mean, it worked really well. It helped me identify the strength and skills of those around me. And then uh, in leadership, when you're building teams, that really has been an asset as I'm identifying the strengths and the, the skill sets and the character of those that I want to do life with. And so I think for me early on, it was out of necessity to compensate for my own shortcomings and and difficulties and um, just needing more time. But those transcended my circumstance to being a a strategy and a strength now as a formal, legitimate leader by title and role. Uh, Those are still the same skills that I'm using to help build the teams that I'm serving or leading or being a part of. So you, you get through school. And then uh, you started working at Kimray in 1997. And that's, uh, for someone of your age, that's uh, a long time ago, considering that you, you must have been in your late, uh, mid to late teens at the time. How did you end up at Kimray? So I met my now wife, Janae. We met in high school. And just the interactions, going to basketball games and things, we said, I think we'd like to, to go on a date. Well, her father had a rule that anyone who was interested in his daughter had to go to lunch with him and spend some time as he would get to know you. And then he would decide whether or not he was going to let you spend time with his daughter. So it was, I'd never done anything like that before. And so we went to lunch and he asked me questions about what do I believe, my theology, my philosophy of life, just uh, my political thoughts. Uh, thoughts on the economy and just really asked me questions that I, I didn't even necessarily know that um, that I had opinions on until being asked the central questions of, well, what do you think about economics? And I think that helped to me, it helped bring clarity to a worldview that I already ascribed to and put clarity around the parameters for how I wanted to live my life. And so that was a tremendous experience, just having that opportunity to, to have someone question you to give explanation for why you do and think and behave the way you do. Uh, very important. When, when you describe that, um, that, that to me is, I've got uh, two daughters myself, one that's uh, just finishing up her freshman year in college, the other one who's finishing up her junior, junior year in high school. 
what you're describing in some ways is a father's dream that he mm-hmm. would be able to sit down uh, with, with that uh, person and be able to talk to them in a meaningful way. But if that were me, if I were in your shoes, I would look at that as a test that I was supposed to have the right answer. Was it like that? You know, it was a relationship. You know, I, I said early on that I, I really desired to be around those that I could learn from. And as a leader, I've always wanted to be one who didn't repeat somebody else's failures. I think successes are really hard to replicate because you can't recreate the variables in that particular moment in time. But Failures often are very repeatable. You can overlook somebody. You can do a lot of things in the wrong way at the wrong time for the wrong reasons, even with the best intentions. And so I would look around and and if I could identify someone that was doing it right or that I wanted to emulate or learn from, either good or bad, right? I wanted to learn not to do something a certain way or if I wanted to do something that worked exceptionally well, I would gravitate to them. And so for him to take the time with me, I quickly realized this is someone I want to learn from. As much as he's pulling out from me what I think, I learned that he was going to sharpen me and I'd be better for having that conversation with him. So that's what started me on my path to really understanding my worldview. But that's also what started me to working at Kimray. At the time, I was a roofer. And so I was roofing homes and I, was, I loved it. But it didn't have any benefits. There were no retirement, no 401k. And so he said, you know, if you're going to take my put body, a, Wait a second. I've put a roof on a house. Uh, I've... Yeah. Um, I've done that work a little bit, but uh, no one that I meet says that they love roofing. You, you're going you're gonna to give me some more on that. Yeah. What, what do you mean by that? So I love working on projects that when you have finished the day's work, you feel like you've accomplished something. And roofing, you know, when you're doing it by the square and you're tearing off a roof or you're putting down the tar paper or you're putting down the shingles... When you're done, you feel it both physically, but also visually, you can see what you've accomplished. You've built something and there's that sweat equity that goes along with it. And I love that sense of accomplishment. So I I loved it in that respect. It was hard backbreaking work, but when you're 18, you're going to live forever and you're, you know, you bounce back the next morning, like nothing happened. Uh, And so for me, I wasn't thinking long-term. I was thinking about right then, was that paying my insurance? Was that giving me gas money? Uh, all those kind of things. And he challenged me on that thinking. And he says, you know, Shad, that's a great thing for you to do now when you're in your teens. But when you're 35, when you're 40, when you're 55, do you think your body's going to be as forgiving on that roof than um, being able to, to just do that for a career? And I hadn't thought of it like that. And so I said, no. And he said, well, why don't you learn a skill? And he says, you can come and work at Kimray and You'll, you'll work your way through paying for school. You will go to school at nights and come in during, during the day and work. And, and so I thought, that's great. And it also helped me see my uh, future wife because she also worked at Kim Ray and as the receptionist. So I'd work all day. And then the last few hours of the day, I would hide out and hang around and just talk to her in between things that were going on just to spend time with her uh, in, the, in the afternoons. And then I'd go to school at night. And so that's kind of what started me there. And you start out at Kimray in that in the same way today. It's the same as it was then in the sense that with no experience, you kind of come in and you work your way up from the ground floor. So sweeping floors and pulling parts, uh, that was what my uh, job entailed right off the bat. And I loved it because they spoke a language that I readily identified with. And that was the language of character and talking about a person's character, not just the competence for what they can do, but how they do it, how they execute. 
And that really resonated with me. And I, lo- I loved it. I loved the idea of justice and truth, initiative, those things that, that really means a lot. Now, I know that you have played some other roles that you, you did some things that were not just Kim Ray uh, along the way. But there's a pretty straight line from 1997 until now in one organization. And you may just start making your way up from uh, sweeping that uh, shop floor and pulling parts to being a machinist, then on to other roles, then director of mm-hmm. HR, then now to this executive vice president role. Why do you think you stayed? I stayed because of the culture. It was the culture and the leadership. Now, in 97, Kimray had 100 employees, 150 employees. And so everybody knew everybody. You knew everyone's spouses, you knew their kids, and, and you knew our senior leadership. So Tom Hill Sr., he would come through the shop a couple times a week and shake everyone's hand, ask how you were doing, ask about your kids by name. And that relationship, that rapport, gave a sense of community and family that was easy to maintain when you're a small organization and you have that proximity and access. Uh, What can be challenging is when your company begins to scale and grow exponentially, it can be difficult to maintain that same sense of community and family when the formality of the systems are are getting more complicated. And so I think that um, early on, I loved that sense of community and, and knowing the CEO and that the CEO knew me, right? He knew Shad, the floor sweeper, and Shad, the parts puller. And that he treated me no different than he treated a customer coming through the door who was our largest, our, our largest customer, right? It, it was that same idea of we elevate humanity and we see the dignity and respect for everybody, regardless of what your title, your position, your social economic status, that people are just people. And he led that way. And he was a great leader in the way that he accomplished that and, and recognizing that the problems we had as an organization often were a result of character, not a result of competence. I know you well enough to know that if you had stayed with uh, roofing, you would have found a way to, to be the best that you could at that, and that you have a great deal of respect for people uh, who are, are willing to do the best they can. And that you don't see it that way, that there's not uh, this hierarchy. But there are different roles. And so one of the great challenges of being a leader is the identity shift that goes from being rewarded for being the doer to being the, the person that is orchestrating the doing. And that shift for most uh, people who are uh, transitioning to a leadership role that identity shift is really a a challenge to be able to see themselves in a different way. When you started recognizing that you were moving into that idea of being a leader, recognizing that you're not more valuable than someone else, but that you do have a different role. If you were talking to an emerging leader today, what would you think, what would you identify as the greatest challenge facing emerging leaders now? You know, I think one of the greatest challenges that any leader has is this idea that I think the, the world kind of puts that imagery, whether it's through movies or, you know, the hero stories that, that, that the leader has all the answers. And I had that same belief, right? I thought, oh, the, the senior leadership, they're at that next level of understanding and knowledge. And then above them is that board of directors and they have really you know, reached the plateau of knowledge of, of leadership and all the things that go into running a business. 
But the reality in my own personal experience is that each different opportunity that I've had to serve, there was no next level. It was still same people with different responsibilities. And so the creativity that you have, whether you hold a broom in your hand or the pen to sign the checks, it's the same skill in terms of um, it takes the same character and it takes the same competencies used in a different way, right? There's a different amount of knowledge that comes with being a CFO or being a, an accountant or cost accountant or whatever, the, whatever it is that you're doing, how you do that determines how well you're going to have other opportunities. So for me, I remember Tom Hill talking about he would always want to hire the farm kid from Nebraska who never went to school, but grew up being very entrepreneurial on a farm, knowing that hardship is just around the corner. It's going to happen. And that there is no one coming to save the day. You've got to step in and pull the community together to dig yourself out of whatever hole you may be in. And that idea, that sense of community of doing life together is really key. So I think for young leaders today or emerging leaders or any leader for that matter, on where they're at on their journey. I think it's realizing you don't have to have all the answers, but the better you are at identifying the talent and knowing your strengths and your weaknesses and the strengths and weaknesses of others, you're going to pull a team that's going to surpass what you could do and accomplish on your own. And for me, it was, I don't have to be the smartest person. In fact, often I don't believe I am, but what I have to be exceptionally good at is identifying those who can do what I can't and do it even better. And building great teams, um, you know, we were talking before this podcast began, just I was sharing with you some things about just how we responded to the COVID-19 crisis. And there were some key decisions we made early on that I think were really important. And that was the beginning to shift the thinking of the organization. But from that moment forward, the people we work with, they started coming with solutions to problems I hadn't even identified and didn't even realize. And so I think that's the value of having the right people that you surround yourself with. And years ago, I don't even know if you remember this, Nathan, but you had told me every time I hire somebody, he said, you said, I should hire someone that you think I can't believe they're on my team. And if you feel that this person that you're working with, you think there's the moment where you're thinking, ah, I cannot believe they're working for the team. You've done the job of picking the right people. And so that's what I've done is always trying to surround myself with people that I can't believe I, I was able to talk into coming to work for us at Kim Ray. And that has served me exceptionally well. And so I've given up the idea that I have to have all the answers. I just have to humble myself and know that I'm responsible for those that I lead. And then I'm going to find the best people that I can with both character and competence. And when the time comes, those are who I want to be in the trenches with. Taking on that theme, and, and I appreciate very much. Um, for those who are listening in, I've known Shad for uh, over a decade. And when he's talking about this, this is something that I, I've seen him live out uh, in times that were good in the market, in times that were challenging in the market. When you think about an area of leadership that you are not good at, and that this is an area that you want to, to grow in, um, that, that you're wrestling with, what, what's an area of leadership that you feel like you're not good at? So I think, you know, I, in graduate school, when you're, when you're pursuing your MBA, I thought going into the program, I'm going to learn everything there is to know about business. And what I got was a little glimpse of all the different parts that go into running a successful business. I didn't become an expert on any of those subjects. And I thought when I emerged from that program, all of a sudden, I'd have all the answers for all the different areas of business. And that's not the case. So I think for me, 
I recognize my skills and what I'm good at. I'm good at people. I'm good at understanding uh, unintended consequences and thinking beyond the present problem. Uh, I'm really good at those kind of strategies and things. What I'm not so great at is you don't want me generating your cash flows. You don't want me doing the three major financial statements that any business needs to have. Uh, now, I've learned enough to be able to read them and interpret the outcome of what those are, but to produce that, that's not me. Right. And so I quickly defer to those who that is their gifting and their skill. Uh, but it doesn't remove my responsibility for understanding what does it mean once they've done that. And so I think from leadership, um, sometimes you can feel when you're in the room inadequate. And so when I'm in the room with our CFO, I absolutely feel inadequate when he's doing calculations on the fly in the room. And I'm sitting there trying to think through what was the, even the question that started the answer. I'm still processing the question when he's giving me totals. Um, and so to me, that sense of that feeling of inadequacy, that's normal. That's just life. And so I think a lot of leaders put too much emphasis on those feelings of inadequacy rather than realizing them and leveraging them to be a strength. I know that's not an area that I'm, that's what I'm going to be good at. I can do it if necessary, but um, that's realizing they're the, they're, the, they're, the, they're the expert. Let them do what they do best and then let go of those feelings of inadequacy and leverage what you do do well and minimize what you don't. And I think we often spend way too much time trying to build up our inadequacies, our, our shortcomings, and we pour so much into those things and we neglect just fine-tuning what we really are good at. That's where we're going to get the best um, and most out of that investment is in what we are good at. Those things that we're not great at, you compensate for them. And so for me, that's, I think, if you, the better you know yourself as a leader, knowing what your shortcomings are and what your strengths are, leverage the strengths and quit pouring tons of time into what you're not good at because the marginal increase you're going to receive in that investment is far less than what you'll reap in the dividends from pouring into what you are good at. Since you've been in, in the role that you're in at Kim Ray, uh, there's been an, an amazing number of innovative things being done in people and culture from Kim Ray. Uh, whether that's uh, providing tuition uh, reimbursement. Um, I think at one point you were contemplating tuition repayment. I don't know if that ever happened or not, but. Yes. Yeah, yeah we're doing it. Uh, we did it. Well, well, we just like, stopped. <laughs> well, then this is a challenging time. Yes, and so when I think about um, some of the things that you've done that, that I find just shocking, uh, one of them is that uh, Kim Ray decided to assist people who were in the adoption process. Mm -hmm. can, can you tell us um, just, a, just kind of an overview? What are some of the things that uh, you look at historically that Kim Ray has been able to do when the market was good that, um, that might be uh, helpful for people to understand the heart of Kim Ray? Yeah, so Kim Ray has been very gracious to me in this journey of, of, of my leadership evolution of of really growing and, and adapting and accomplishing the goals that we have and how creatively we go about doing that. So early on, I want to say a part of Kim Ray's DNA that's been there since 1948. And can you tell us what Kim Ray does real quickly as well? Yeah, absolutely. So Kim Ray is an oil and gas valve manufacturer. So we're a turnkey facility manufacturer who makes control equipment for the oil and gas industry. And we make things. We take metal and we make things that make life better for everybody. And so that 
that, that beginning, our humble beginnings of literally being out of a garage and a mom and pop shop, uh, that was the beginning. But that DNA has remained the same all throughout from growing from just a company of a few to a company at our high point of being 950 and where we're at today with around 750. Um, I think that what has made Kimray so unique is that they've been willing to grow beyond what they're comfortable with. So when you have a hundred people, like in 1997, uh, we had one leader, it was Tom Hill senior, who was acting as the president or the executive vice president and, and ultimately acting as our CEO, but he ran and made all the decisions. And that was the model that was presented to him. And then as changes in our environment challenged that model, when you've got 500, 600, 700 and on up, it's hard to lead with just one leader making all the decisions. And so we went from being where everything was relationally based, that, that individual relationship with the CEO, with the senior leader, to being one where the system had to change. And so we brought in another tier of leadership of executives that took on those other functional areas and became more subject matter experts in that specific area of, of, of need. And so today we have a number of executives that focus on just taking care of the facility. An executive who takes care of sales and marketing to our executive vice president. And, and I'm looking at people, culture, and all the other things that are going on within the organization that impact people. And so I think that that recognizing and being willing to grow beyond what you've only known has been a strength that Kimray has had since inception, right? Very innovative in looking at applying what we do well into solving problems that may be outside of our field of, of discipline or philosophy. So I think those are things that, that have inspired me. But really, for me as a career, what I've done is simply take what we had experienced when we were a small company and formalize that into programs like the adoption assistance program. That fits our model of wanting to strengthen and honor the family. Uh, but the way we can do that is by putting into place systems that no longer require me to have the one-on-one -on -one relationship with the individual accessing those resources. And so it makes it a more even playing field for everyone in the organization to have access without having to have the relationship. And it's not that I'm knocking the relationship it's that I recognize it's not practical for Thomas Hill, uh, our, our CEO today, to know every single person in the organization and what's going on in their life. But if we can create opportunities, then we can accomplish the same thing, which is what we always wanted. We want people's lives to be better for having them come and been and interacting or working with Kim Ray than before they came to know us. So I know that you have the uh, adoption assistance and then you have... Uh, the, the tuition uh, assistance. Uh, you also have uh, executive coaching for your senior level leaders. You, you do the Kimray Leadership Academy. You have onboarding programs that are uh, legendary. Um, that type of thing, what, what else would you add to that? That if I'm listening to this and I'm looking at uh, the ambition of a company that cares about its people, what are some of the things that you would point to that? Uh, that you've grown into in the formalization of that, that you'd add to that list? What are some other things that Kim Ray is doing? You know, I think it's really no different than what we've been talking about already. It's just taking the informal and formalizing that in a systems approach. And so the succession planning that we have, the skill enhancement and development 
through coaching. It's the idea that we want to be a, an, a learning organization. We want to have a growth mindset so that we're not fixed based on our previous experience, but that we look at the present problem with new eyes. And so if we can inspire our workforce, it's the, it's the idea behind uh, open book management. So we're an open book management company. And what that means for those of you who are listening, it, it means we share everything. Our financials are laid out every month. Not only do we share what has happened, we ask everyone to help feed into the models of what's going to happen. We forward forecast. And the idea is if I can have everyone in our organization act and think like an owner, then how much more responsive will we be to the changing conditions in the market, to the needs of our customers? And if we take really great care of our people by giving them opportunities to lessen the burden of stress that that can be on their life, then I have more of their attention and focus on the present needs of our customers. If I can alleviate the stress of the difficulties of growing the family, and knowing that there's a there's um, a resource that we want them to achieve the goals they have personally and professionally. Again, I think that deepens the loyalty. So there's a symbiotic relationship between the organization and those that are employed by that organization. The cultures from the sum of the behaviors of the people there. If those people that are a part of our organization have excellent experiences, they have less stress, financially they're taken care of, they make a living wage, they have great benefits, then that creativity, when you're no longer in crisis, you're able to do a lot more things uh, and see things that are possible than when you are reacting and acting out of fear to a specific threat, right? If we can be less stressed, then we can be more creative. If we're more creative, then we create conditions that alleviate additional stress. And so it's that relationship where that upfront investment we get paid back in spades from the creativity and initiative of our people. And then in turn, how do they impact the next generation of whether that be leadership or the literal next generation and the way in which they interact with their kids? And so that's what we want to do is alleviate that stress. That's how we strengthen and honor the family. And so I think those are things that I look at those programs and a lot of companies, when we've talked about what we're doing, they say, oh, we could never do that. We have to protect the bottom line. I look at that and say, this is how we protect our bottom line. Now, we talked about the downturn and that we're experiencing in our industry. And so, yes, we've cut out a lot of those programs right now in an effort to protect the community. But that doesn't mean we don't believe in those things. It's right now we need to be cash flow neutral in preserving our cash rather than looking at the bottom line at the moment. Being so transparent with the, the financials in your company, how do you think that that has uh, impacted uh, your ability to communicate openly and be trusted in what is an unprecedented challenge to your industry specific, specifically? Well, if we were having this conversation four months ago, three months ago, I would have said, we've never, I hope we will never go through an experience as dramatic as what we went through in 15 and 16. But I look today at 15 and 16 as the primer that's allowed us to respond as capably as we have in this present crisis. So the playbook that we have and how we've responded to the downturn of 15 and 16, we had 18 months to learn as we wrote it and experienced it at the same time. The dramatic downturn that we've experienced in the industry, recognizing we're being attacked on two fronts. We have the pandemic on one hand, and then we have the drop in price of oil on the other. And they're compounding one another, right? So we would have had an issue with price in the commodity, even if we didn't have the pandemic. 
But when you shutter the entire world economy and there's no travel going on, um, that's devastating, not just for the oil and gas, but for every industry. And so that's really been a, a challenge in responding to that. But that open book management philosophy and having everyone act and think like an owner has meant that this is shared sacrifice that they recognize right away of what we've got to do. And so instant, instantly, I mean, literally overnight, we cut out you know, $8 million and an un, unnecessary spend given our present circumstance and what we're projecting to go through going forward. What that does with our workforce in 15 and 16 is when we got to a point where we had no other option but to use a layoff uh, to, to help lighten the, the ship. That was the only way to preserve the community so that there was a chance to bring them back. And so when we did that, it wasn't a surprise. It was with full transparency. It was letting them know what we were doing. And the constant reminder coming from those impacted was, we can't believe you didn't do this sooner. And it wasn't one of anger or bitterness, but it was truly just sadness that it has come to this, but it was necessary. What that did for us was that after the layoff, three months later, we were able to start hiring people back. And so we brought back of the 180 we impacted at that time, we brought back 90 almost overnight within three months of the layoff. I mean, it was really, really fast to, to bring in that level of, of um, team members to get back into the workforce and to go back to work. That was phenomenal. And I think we were able to do that so quickly because of the way we handled it. It created genuine trust that it wasn't about protecting the bottom line. It was about protecting the organization. And so I think a lot of times you'll see companies use headcount reductions as a way to protect share value and the bottom line where that's a strategy. And I think I don't fault them for that. That's the way the world works. For us, our shareholders have been gracious enough to say we want to protect the community more than we're wanting to protect the share value. But we recognize at some point we have to protect the organization so that we can continue to have any community. And that's where we're at today. So we are having a, um, we're having to make that hard decision that's going to impact about 27% of our workforce. And that actually happens this Monday. Wow. I'm really sorry uh, for everybody. Uh, we're, we're seeing numbers that uh, none of us would have dreamed possible. I remember reading numbers like this about the Great Depression, and, you, and you, it was hard to get your head around the idea. And now we're living through it. And I won't put words in your mouth, but I, I, I do know how generous you are being with the people who are being affected by this so that they um, have the resources to be able to, to transition over the next few months. And I yeah. uh, appreciate very much what, what you've done for your people. If Sometimes, I could, I'd like to, I'd like to say one thing. Please. So we announced on Monday that we were going to have a, we're having to make this hard decision of, of conducting a, work, a workforce reduction. In that time, from that announcement company-wide, we've had a number of team members who are still thinking of others above themselves. I had an email just two days ago uh, from someone who said, I understand all that's going on, but in the present crisis, could we do anything to help make parts for ventilators? And this is one of those times where things are happening so fast that it's been difficult to communicate in real time, even how quickly things are evolving. But we actually are making parts for face shields and ventilator components. And we're looking at uh, designing and really enhancing the way respirators work um, and ventilators. 
And so that's something that's been really exciting. And even in the midst of this tremendous hardship that we're facing, there's still good things that are occurring. And what's been inspiring to me is when you do have a workforce that genuinely trusts their leadership, that genuinely wants to be a part in protecting that community, even knowing that their position's on the line, we're still receiving communications from our team members who are more concerned with how do we help others outside of the organization. Uh, and I, that to me is very, it's just inspiring where mm. somebody is still being that selfless. And, and, and it's not just the one person. We have a number of people that are that way. And I think that goes into showing the type of organization ultimately that you want. Right, the behaviors that are that are being engaged in now are a direct result. I hope from the culture we've tried to protect and to um, continue, and that 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 understanding that we're here to elevate humanity and respect the dignity of every person, and that's a that's been very inspiring to me. Despite this present difficulty we're facing, we'll get through this. Uh, we absolutely will. And I am very hopeful that we'll be able to bring back many of those who are going to be impacted in the months to come and uh, be able to bring them back to the family. Thank you for sharing all of that. I know that it's uh, still very fresh and I know that that cuts deeply and I appreciate your uh, openness about that. One of the things that uh, I think is phenomenal is the response that you've had to COVID-19. And not that it's a competition or anything, but I um, do not know of a company that has done more or has done more earlier, at least in our region, than what you have done uh, at Kimray. Um, help me understand that, because when you started going down this path as a company, you were doing it very early, and there were <laughs> a number of people, I'm assuming, who would have looked at the actions that you were taking at the time scratching their head a bit, wondering why you were overreacting so much. And now uh, that has, you've been vindicated of any of that, um, any of those questions, but tell me, how, how did you decide to act on this so early? And what were some of the things you had to overcome to be able to uh, protect your people? And I do want to express my appreciation again as an essential uh, industry uh, to keep the doors open during this time, to keep manufacturing moving so that we can keep America moving. That is not um, without hardship to uh, families and to individuals. And, and I do appreciate very much the willingness of the team to be a part of that. But you saw that really early on. Can you, can you tell us about that? Yeah. So in late January, I started reading reports about what was happening and we began hearing things in the media about what was going on in Wuhan, China. And I think the, the thing that caught my attention was we just didn't know what was going on. And, and even when early on, when the, even when the who was saying, Hey, we don't believe this is going to be person to person transmission yet. The images we were seeing out of Wuhan were the big trucks spraying so, well, then if it's not person to person, it's not airborne, why are they driving twice a day spraying when the Wuhan, the city of Wuhan, that it's like twice the size of New York City. But to see what they were doing every day, that to me said, okay, there's more here than we even know or that they even understand. And so it just, I said, this could be a big deal. Well, I happened to be in, in the hospital in the first week of February with a family member and I heard the nurses talking, and I was just engaging them, asking them, what do they think about this? And they were saying, oh, it's, it's quite the talk with the doctors. And, you know, our present flu season, you know, that's really, it's really bad. 
And so she was talking to me about just the difficulties of getting PPE and um, just that equipment that they're running short just because of how bad the flu season is and how many of the physicians have been taken out by the flu and not being able to work and what a difficulty and strain has been on their, on their labor force. And so I just said, you know what, if this is like this with the flu, if this really were to be more significant, this is going to be bad. So I made a phone call from the hospital room and, and just called our, our vice president of facilities. And, and I, I said, Isaac, I know this is going to sound crazy, but I'd like you to buy like a year's worth of medical grade gloves, masks, hand sanitizer, disinfectants, everything that we normally order monthly, but just in larger quantities. And I think, he, and I know it sounded like I was kidding because I was being kind of lighthearted because I had nothing to base that on except just a gut feeling. And I said, even if I'm wrong, we won't have to purchase these things for several months. But if I'm right, I'm afraid these things are going to become in very high demand. And so we did. We, we, we did that. And what we thought, and what we did is we bought basically six months worth of all of these items. And what that ended up amounting to is actually three months worth, because when you factored in the utilization of how often we're now using hand sanitizers and the cleaners and the aggressive response to this virus and just protecting and limiting transmission or exposure. Um, we didn't order enough, but we were way ahead of the curve. The other thing that was just something we, that we did very quickly was um, I asked our vice president of sales to, to shut down all international travel. And that came more from a heart of just wanting to protect our people, not because I knew anything in particular. I just knew we didn't know enough. And so we stopped that um, in the first week of February. This was, that was well before we were getting you know, travel bans in place and then ultimately saying, hey, don't travel even in any of the states. But even before that you know, direction and advice and guidance had come down, we had decided to stop domestic travel as well. I think what's encouraging as I go back to the idea that the leader doesn't have to have all the answers. Right? So our CEO, I remember going in and talking to him, and this is just about a month ago, and saying, I think we need to shut down all travel, all conferences. And here's why. And I just laid out my thinking. And we recognized then, this was before the guidance from the CDC. Uh, but what Thomas did, which I'm very appreciative of, is he says, okay, because I believe you, I trust you. And if you think this is what we need to do, then that's what we're going to do. And he put out the, the order, the communication that we were bringing that all to a close for three weeks. And that was more than a month ago. And so I think as we've seen things evolve, I think that's, again, another nod to great leaders surround themselves with people that they trust and that they're going to listen to their counsel as they make the decisions that are necessary. And that really is inspiring to me to work for someone who trusts me and other leadership in the organization to do what's best, what's right, and to taking that counsel in. And, and like you said, there are several who thought we were crazy. And I said, it's okay. If I'm wrong, we can go back and we can make money. If I'm right, then we've protected our community, we've protected our families, and we've protected Oklahomans. And I believe it was the right, and I know it was the right call now, but at the time, I believed it was. And then what inspires me even more is that's, you know, those are some easy things because that's what I have direct control over, or at least responsibility to recommend to our CEO. Um, but the actions of our people after that is what is just unbelievable. All the team members and the creativeness that they just took the ball and continued running downfield and doing it in a way that was just phenomenal. So we had our facilities team talked about where we're going to assign 
people to each building so that they're not going to any other building except that one. And we have 17 buildings on our campus, depending on how you slice and dice it. And so just quickly identifying ways that we could limit um, the cross exposures. And I really appreciate just that thoughtfulness. Our, our custodial teams, they started putting cards on every room that they disinfected to let you know this space has been cleaned. We've sanitized every surface. Those things that just bring comfort, that's what we're looking for. Those moments to alleviate stress, even if it's just for a few minutes, that is a tremendous value when you're trying to lead an organization in the midst of a crisis. I'm reminded of something my mom would say to me as a kid when we'd be facing a difficulty as a family and we'd be say, mom, why isn't God answering our prayers? And she'd say, well, God, you know, sometimes Shad, God answers our prayers by not calming the storm, but calming the child in the midst of the storm. And so when we can latch onto those moments where we can have calm and peace, even though the waves are still coming and hitting the ship, we can weather that knowing that he's in charge. I may not understand what's going on and what ultimate good or what will come of it, but I trust that God does and, and is in control. And that helps me. There's no safer place for us to be than where we're at presently if we're in the will of God. And I believe that. As a believer, as a man of faith, that is how I am acting. And that's what I'm believing to be true. And that has never failed me. And so when I look at our people and just their response to this uncertainty and to these challenges and the creativeness that they've um, approached it with, it's, uh, it's inspiring to me. And it's just a privilege to be in leadership even in the midst of a crisis, when you have that commitment and loyalty and creativity and care and love, and that comes from a heart of relationship. Instead of self-preservation, there's still concern for those that they're around that's greater than that desire to self-preserve. And I think that comes from a heart of love. And I think our people love one another and I love our people. Chad, uh, thank you so much for being a part of our show today. Uh, it, it means a lot to me personally. And uh, for those of you who want to know more about Shad or uh, Kim Ray, uh, look them up online at uh, KimRay.com. This has been the Strata Leadership Show, and we are honored to have leaders be a part of this community. This program really is focused on bringing leaders together, sharing stories and ideas that make life better for all. If we can serve you through executive coaching, training, and organizational development, we would love to be able to do that. And you can check out Strata Leadership at strataleadership.com. Have a great day.